Hi, and welcome to Experts in Conversation, the podcast series for the Mind Reading Project. Mind Reading explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice. It's animated by the questions, do doctors and patients speak the same languages? And how can we use narratives to bridge the evident gaps? The project began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Diseases of Modern Life Project at the University of Oxford. And its intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health. Our events are all independent, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research, as well as philosophy, in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental and physical health. So this podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which unfortunately had to be postponed due to COVID-19. Today's episode is entitled Words to Live By, Hearing the Stories of Dementia. So our first segment on today's podcast is a very, very exciting one. We're joined by Dr. Wendy Mitchell and Mr. Kevin Quaid. Wendy is the author of Somebody I Used to Know, a best-selling memoir documenting the early signs of Alzheimer's disease and her diagnosis and ultimately learning to live with the disease and finding hope. Wendy is mum to Gemma and Sarah. She's also a former NHS manager and a writer, as well as the book Wendy Writes a Regular Blog, and she's an active advocate for people living with Alzheimer's disease. In her book, Wendy says, I want to be heard, and we're delighted she's joining us today so that we can listen. Wendy has received two honorary doctorates for her work from Bradford and Hull universities. And she's a champion of dementia research, in particular research led by people living with dementia. Kevin Quaid is the author of Louis Body Dementia, Survival and Me. Kevin wrote this book because he found a lack of information from the perspective of a person living with the condition and is now writing his second book. Kevin is a member of the Irish Dementia Working Group and vice chair of the European Working Group of People Living with Dementia. Kevin is married to Helena and he's a dad and a granddad. He's a keen sports fan and a baker and an active member of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland Dementia Research Advisory Team. And like Wendy, he champions a person-led approach and is a PPI contributor on many studies. And Kevin and Wendy are going to be interviewed by Clodagh Whelan, who's the Advocacy, Engagement and Participation Officer of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, supporting the work of the Irish Dementia Working Group. Clodagh has worked with older people for nearly 20 years and supported people living with dementia in housing, day services and long-term care. Clodagh has a primary degree in law and a postgraduate diploma in person-centred dementia care and social gerontology. She's currently undertaking a research master's to understand more about the human rights of people living with dementia. We're very excited to hear from them all today. Well, I don't know about Wendy and Kevin, but that's an amazing introduction. I feel we've a lot to live up to in our bios. Um, <laughs> I'm going to begin by just re reminding us what is dementia? There's a lot of confusion. So dementia is an umbrella term and it's the umbrella term for a range of conditions which cause damage and changes to the brain. Symptoms of dementia include memory loss, communication difficulties, hallucinations, the loss of the ability to form everyday tasks and sensory issues. And there are 64,000 people in Ireland living with dementia. We estimate that that's going to increase to 150,000 by 2045. So this isn't a niche issue. This is affecting our neighbours, our friends, our family members, and in the future could very possibly affect us. In fact, in 2015, the Alzheimer's Society in the UK published research that estimated that one in three children born that year would go on to develop dementia. 
The other thing that's sometimes not spoken about is that dementia is a human rights issue. And for too long, people living with dementia have been stigmatized, their voices haven't been heard, and we all really need to change that. So I'm really excited today to be joined by Wendy and Kevin, who've taken very firm steps to change that, both of them having written about living with dementia. So I'm going to come to you first, Wendy, and I'd like to understand why you decided to write your book. Why did you tell your story? Well, initially, I'd been asked many times to write a book by many publishers, but I knew I couldn't write one by myself because I'd turn the page and forget what I'd just written. Yes. So I needed someone with me. And when, when my co-writer, Anna Wharton, contacted me via, via email out of the blue to ask, could I write a book with you that I wished I'd had when my father was alive, as he died of dementia? I knew then that the possibility was becoming a reality. But I needed to trust her. I needed to know that I could open my heart to her. And within two minutes of meeting her, I, I began to realise that my dream was coming true. I could write a book because we got on famously from the start. But the reason why I wanted to write a book was because I wanted to write for me. I, that's all my intention was. I never imagined in a million years that anyone else would want to read my story. Yes. I wanted to hold a book in my hand that was my story. And, and you've gone on, Wendy, you know, to be a, a Sunday Times bestseller. And I know you said when we were preparing for this that that was just beyond your dreams. I, I'm interested in how you and Anna wrote the book together. I think you told me you did a lot of writing over WhatsApp. Oh, we did. WhatsApp came into its own. <laughs> because I can't use the phone anymore. I find that too difficult. Yes. People get impatient at the other end and can't hear me thinking, can't see me thinking. So we had to find a way that worked. And she actually taught me how to use WhatsApp because I didn't know how to use WhatsApp at the time. Wow. And she would contact me each day via WhatsApp to say what we're going to write today. I would write whatever she'd asked of me and then I would email it back to her mm. and we'd have whatsapp conversations on what what I needed to include what I needed to expand and all all the probing that she was very good at so emojis took on a whole new meaning for us because I never knew emojis existed before that time I'm a huge fan of them I find that fascinating because I think sometimes people who are interested in literature, be it writing or reading, you know, we can be dismissive of emojis. We, we can be quite disparaging of their use, but obviously they supported you to get your point across, which is really fascinating. Yes, it's their simplicity yes. that enables yes. me. And yes. I, could, I could put across to Anna immediately if I was unhappy if I was confused by the question just one emoji said it all 
That's so interesting, Wendy. I'm going to ask Kevin now the same question. Kevin, you got your diagnosis and, and we, you've shared with me that you hadn't written in the past. So and now you're you're I think the phrase you used was you're gone stone mad for writing. So 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 what made you stone mad for writing? What began? I suppose it was something I was actually thinking about last night. When the day Helena and myself sat in the neurologist's office and she said to me, you have Lewy body dementia. I had never heard of the word Lewy body and I was like a lot of people there. I thought dementia meant memory problems and I didn't have a memory problem. So fast forward the tape, the doctor wanted to see, the neurologist wanted to see me every four or five weeks and asked me, but I keep notes on what my day to day and especially my nightlife was like because Dementias are so different, and especially Louis bodies. Like Wendy and myself have so much in common, but our diseases are miles apart in symptoms. Yes. And it was when I was with one of the team, the neurological team one day, he said to me, my God, he said, these notes are so important to us. Would you ever consider writing a book? And with the support of a wonderful family, my kids, my wife, and especially... I dedicated my first book, Louis Body Dementia Survival of Me, to my cousin Teresa, who was at stage four cancer and she was months from dying. She really encouraged me to write it. And I suppose the main reason behind it was the lack of information that Helena and myself were able to get. Yes. On Louis Barrios. The only thing we got actually was four, four A4 pages from, I think, maybe England. From my from from my neurologist, so uh, the Claire asked the question earlier: uh, Do doctors and patients speak the same language? And I just thought, what a wonderful question! Because I think they are beginning to. Because my neurologist relies a lot on me and my symptoms. So my first book was to get. I wanted people to get to know who I was, what happened to me through my life. Nothing exceptional detail but that you you could frame a picture of who I was mm. being diagnosed with Louis body dementia how we coped with it as a family in that we went through everything from literally power of attorney my funeral you name it what was going to be it because I have kids in Australia kids in Ireland and rather than having the family meetings they are now know what dad wants and then yes. we thought we thought at the end of the book that it would be nice to see how it affected them. So my children, my stepchildren, a brother of mine, a friend of mine, and my wife all wrote what it was like for them. So everyone's voice is in it. But my second one that's due to be released later this year is going to be entitled I'm Kevin, not Louis. And where the other book is a kind of, you know, a sad book, and it's tough, and this guy gets Louis by the dementia. This is one of hope. It's one that if you get diagnosed early enough with a disease that's we're told is both progressive and incurable, that there is another life there. And you can live sometimes actually a normal life. I'm going to come in there because I think that's a very interesting point. Having read both your books, a really common theme that both of you talk about is identity. And Wendy, there's a, a phrase in your book, you say, I was faced with a choice to stay in the life I knew rather than the new one sketched out in the table in front of me. 
and that you tried on different hats. You wondered, could you be Wendy the baker because you started baking for your local homeless service? And I wonder, would you like to tell us a little bit about that, about how you found the new Wendy living with Alzheimer's disease in your book? Well, when I was diagnosed, I was left at rock bottom. I went into deep depression because no one told, no one gave me that hope. No one told me there was a life. You know, the clinical process is very negative because it focuses on what we can't do. Mm. And I soon realised, and it was seeing my daughter's faces, the effect I, my depression was having on them. It was seeing their faces that made me realise that the only person that was going to get me out of this was me. Mm. Because the phone didn't ring with support, or the phone didn't ring with appointments. I was just discharged. So I knew I had to carve out a new life. Mm. I just didn't realise where that life was going to begin with. And I clung on to work for a long time because I wasn't ready to retire. Yes. I retired on my terms, not when the NHS thought I should retire, which was right at the yeah. beginning. But then a new life opened up for me once I began to meet other people with dementia because I began to realise that, uh, my goodness, they, she's been diagnosed for 10 years and look at her speaking on a stage. Look at mm. the life she's leaving, leading. So they gave me hope. And oh. I, I, sorry. No, I was just going to say, Wendy, that the hope shines through in your book, mm. as does the humour. I laughed a lot reading it. You have a lovely story about Billy the cat who was putting on weight and nobody could figure out why. And then you realised you were forgetting that you'd fed him and, mm. and you kept feeding him and Billy was expanding, you, you know, yeah. and you have loads of loads of humour. You call you were mentioning um, other people living with dementia you call them your playmates, right. which, yeah, which is a touch of the playboy and Hugh Hefner about it, which really made me laugh. Um, I, I'm going to come, I suppose, Kevin, that's something I, I thought you and Wendy really have in common as well. You both have a sense of humour and you're both looking for hope. And how did you find the hope, Kevin? Well, I suppose like Wendy, when you're diagnosed with dementia, you very well need a sense of humour, don't you? Yeah. Um, listening to Wendy there talking, and it's only my second time uh, meeting her, but our ideas, are, she, Wendy, could, Wendy could speak for me. What Wendy has said is exactly, exactly the way I feel, and I gave up work on my terms. I gave up driving on my terms. Louis Barry Dementia was not going to tell me when I couldn't drive anymore. Louis Barry Dementia was not going to tell me when I stopped driving anymore. I, I, I suppose you could describe it in a way that when a person, God love us, that has cancer and they know they're going to lose their hair and they say, right, well, the cancer is not going to take my hair. I'm going to make the decision to take it off now. And that's, maybe it's unfair to make that comparison. I don't know. But I decided to take charge of my life. 
And like the writing, it just happened by pure accident. And I had I had a book launch and a local newspaper approached me and said, look, there's a platform here. Use it whenever you want to. It turned into writing one week and I'm now writing from every week with, with a number of years. It's a focus, it's a hope. It's, it's something I would never have dreamed of doing in a million years. And you know, I think being diagnosed with a disease like we have, and when the touchness as well, you find something new in yourself that you never thought was there. Because when I went to school, I hated to write an essay. And here I am now, a published author, about to, about to publish a second book. If you taught me that five years ago, I would have said there was something seriously wrong with you. Yes. And Wendy, I love to bake as well. And my one of my favourite things to do are Christmas cakes. But I have to bake so many of them. And you would assume that it's because we have such a large family. It's not. Myself or my wife and I, we adore fruitcake. So the first three are sample cakes. <laughs> Sample cakes. That's a great. That's a great phrase, Kevin. I have to say, I've worked with you for a couple of years now, and I've never received a sample cake. We're going to have to. We're going to have to do something about that. I. I think. I, I really enjoyed preparing with both of you for, for this chat because because of your your sense of humor and you do have so much in common, Wendy. I was struck by a phrase in your book. You said dementia doesn't have to be a full stop. It can be a comma. And, and I got that same sense for, for Kevin. And I'm wondering, because, because the Mind Reading podcast will be listened to by, hopefully, by a lot of clinicians, would you have advice for doctors when they're diagnosing you so that it doesn't feel like a full stop? I so wish that clinicians would turn around the diagnosis. When I was diagnosed, I was given a sad look a handshake and said, there's nothing we can do. No hope, no indication of what I might, life I might still have, just no hope. If only that neurologist had said to me, yes, the diagnosis is that of young onset dementia and not something anyone would wish to have, but think of it as a different way of living, of a life of adapting. And no, there might not be anything I can do, but there's still so much you can still do, still so much life you can still live. How different my mindset would have been with those few words ringing in my ears, those words of hope instead of despair. That's really beautiful, Wendy. It's, it's a really important distinction that of there might be might not be medical things the doctors can do but you can still live your life kevin would you have advice for for a uh, doctor i just absolutely love again what wendy has said and I, I it takes me back to the day we were diagnosed and when i was told that i had lewy body dementia instead of like wendy said instead of it being um a devastating diagnosis, especially for younger onset, that if the doctor said to me, look, Kevin, it is a horrible disease, but why not look at it as an opportunity? 
why not look at it as a time to do something you always wanted to do? Was there a passion in your life that you wanted to do? And instead of, as Wendy said, give up altogether and go home, give us that opportunity or, or set the seed, set the seed in our head that will say, right, what was, what, what was the thing I always wanted to do? Was it travel? Was it write? Was it read? Was it listen to music? Whatever it was, if a doctor would just go that one extra sentence and say, look, instead of looking at this as a life sentence or looking at it for what it is, look at it for the opportunities that it may present. And in my case, and I've told you this before, Clara, I have had more wow moments, W-O-W, in my life since I was diagnosed than I had while I was living my so-called normal life. And one was um, when I was asked to be um, take part in research project and the doctor there asked me, would I be co-lead? I would have been co-lead and nothing I can assure you had I still being a project manager or, or, or whatever. So like clinicians and neurologists and GPs and that, as Wendy said, just go that little one step further right, you're delivering devastating news. But have a boot there, boot. There is an opportunity. There is an organization like the ASI or Louis Body Society or whatever, whatever it would be. There are books there. There are people there that can, that can help. You're not the first one, you know? Yes. Just one sentence from me yes. that I think applies to both me and Kevin is never to give up on yourself. Because all those many people around you will do that for you. And this applies to anybody in any circumstance. But it really has applied to us. Something I'd like to add as well. Listen to, listen to what Wendy said. Just listen to what Wendy said. Because I am in 100% agreement. We're in different countries. We have a different form of a disease. But that's well i i think both of you have given definitely me food for thought and i think actually that sense of of finding joy in in the situation you currently find yourself in is advice for all of us now as we navigate life in in covid19 and something we we can remember um i i think we we could talk to both of you all day <laughs> but we're coming to the end of our session and and i I was struck, Wendy, you asked a question of yourself in the book. You said, can I rely on the new me? And, and I think we've really got an answer to that today for both of you. We, we, we are, are so grateful to have the new you in conversation today. And thank you very much for your time. So our next speaker is um, Des O'Neill. Des is a consultant geriatrician at Tala University Hospital and professor of geriatric medicine at Trinity College Dublin. And Des has been active in medical and health humanities over several decades. And I would say that active is something of an understatement. Um, so we're delighted to have Des with us today and really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Thank you. First of all, I'm delighted that we're having this session and uh, would like to emphasize that it always is um, humbling and important to hear uh, narratives, be they from patients, people living with dementia. In fact, we need to try and avoid the word patient, victim, sufferer, uh, people living with dementia. We 
need to contextualize that with narratives of caregivers, the narratives of healthcare care staff and professionals, and also the outside world. Uh, Rita Caron talks about the four, the, one of the founders of the area of narrative medicine talks about the four sets of dialogues that are going on with yourself, with your peers, uh, with society, and with the person across the table, and that works uh, both ways. Uh, I would have to say at the outset, and I think um, understanding the big picture of what it means to be well, to be ill, to experience the health system is really the main goal of what are known as the medical and health humanities. They're part of a big word, epistemology, you know, the science of knowledge. And in some ways, my preference for using narrative and what we hear from patients written accounts or indeed from artistic representations of the conditions, ones that are authentic, uh, is that they give us a broader, fuller picture. They fill out and support our presence when we're when we're talking to and uh, trying to help people with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and the other dementias. Uh, I've always been interested and never have had a problem in seeing the fuller person. I was gifted this by my parents and grandparents, all four of them had dementia. But as is the case for most people living with dementia, they became more themselves with their dementia. And in fact, um, maintained warmth and humor, although clearly there were challenges from my parents. But I also saw this care relationship, the importance of understanding that we're all mutually codependent, even if in you know professional middle life, people may be agnostic of the fact that uh, all autonomy is exercised in the embrace of others. So I suppose listening to, to, uh, to um, Wendy and Kevin, I suppose one thing that kind of still catches me in the throat is that any doctor anywhere might say to anybody, uh, there's no more I can do for you. Uh, I love Abraham Vergese's book, uh, Cutting for Stone, where the one thing the physician can give in any place is to whisper in the ear words of comfort. And certainly, um, can I say within medicine and the whole area of, and indeed, if we're talking about language, I like the ethicist Stephen Post's evolving phrase is life for the deeply forgetful, because, um, you know, there's all sorts of issues around around labels and names. And indeed, uh, interestingly, I, I, I never say to people this is a devastating or catastrophic uh, diagnosis. I always say to them, you are no different. 20 minutes after I tell you this than you were 20 minutes before. Many of the people who come to me are, know about it. Their relatives are more scared than they are about getting the, the diagnosis. And I haven't had a single catastrophic reaction of any kind in you know, 30 years of practice in this area here. But way back, one of the early pioneers, a guy called David Jolly, a psychiatrist in later life, uh, railed against what happens in memory, so-called memory clinics, where he said there's little point in giving people a diagnosis if it doesn't lead to support and ongoing further service and support. And indeed, in Tala Hospital, this is something we've really tried to emphasize. It's not a memory clinic. It's a memory service. We offer, I think we are the first in the country to offer post-diagnostic counseling. We offer uh, courses for both people living with it and for those who are with them. And indeed, we're the first hospital in Ireland to have set up a, an information stand about memory disorders called the Memory Hub, 
Now, it's only one afternoon a week compared to, say, the cancer stand that's there all week. But in fact, it shows how in the shadow and the shade this area is. So really, really welcome these narratives. And to these, I would add um, other narratives which give us a fuller, wider picture of what might life is, what life might like be like. And I think also, as, as, as both Wendy and Kevin have displayed, the opportunities with any illness of growth. Uh, the late uh, uh, psychologist Paul Kennedy had a wonderful study of people with spinal cord injury. And without being a Pollyanna or wishing a severe spinal cord injury uh, on anybody, um, huge increase in personal growth compared to people who hadn't. So people learn to evolve and to grow with any illness. And indeed, I think it's also quite important not to, to, to learn from other illnesses where there is stigma. The sociologist Zola, many, three, four decades ago, uh, undertook an experiment, a sociologist and disability activist, where he uh, put himself into a wheelchair in a disabled living centre, a progressive one in the Netherlands. And all of a sudden people ignored him or steered clear of him or didn't serve him the same way at the counter. So I think we need to learn from, from these narratives and stigma perhaps in, in, in other areas. And I'm really keen that we, we turn to sociology, philosophy, uh, but also a deep close reading of, of literature that shows us um, how perceptive artists um, stand back and view things. And it's really always been very, very interesting. Uh, for example, I've had an example many years ago, uh, the great artist Kokoschka foretold a stroke in a very famous Swiss uh, psychiatrist uh, called Forel. He painted him and Forel and his family said, I don't want this picture. It makes me look like I've had a stroke. And what did he have a year and a half later about a stroke affecting that side? And we now know that often you've had a, a subtle stroke before that, and it comes out when you're tired or sleepy. And Kokoschka often paints in the evenings when you're sleepy. So what artists see can be really, really useful. And uh, I haven't read uh, Kevin's book, but I really did enjoy uh, Wendy's book. And to me, it parallels other, other areas. Um, uh, one of the Mordecai Richler, a Canadian novelist, has written a wonderful novel called Barney's Version. Now, Mordecai Richler himself developed dementia, and I cannot help but feeling that he was feeling the first winds of change when he wrote this. But it's a funny, ribald uh, book. I, I haven't seen the movie and I don't want to see it. But it, 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 the, it, one of the first chapters is where he, he forgets what the word is for a colander. And it's the beginning of the issue. And, but he's somebody who lives the wrong side of the tracks. And it's, it brings out warmth and humor. And this is what I've seen in my practice over, over, over decades. And it's really, really important that we do not make this diagnosis worse by uh, attaching apoc apocalyptic tones to it. And when people come back to me, I try to direct them towards books like uh, there's a wonderful theatre director, a MacArthur fellow, Anne Basting, who's not only written a wonderful book called um, Forget Memory, which is about not being sideswiped by the memory problems, but seeing all those fuller elements of why we love people, engage with them. Uh, but she's undertaken a marvellous theatre project called the Penelope Project, which is undertaking a version of Ulysses, the women weaving while waiting for Ulysses and 
the crew to come home. And it really is extraordinarily um, um, affirmative. And indeed, her program, Time Slips, was based on the fact that often when people say go to a nursing home, they try to develop a narrative of how their former life was. And she noticed, being a perceptive artist, that they got quite embarrassed when they forgot the name of a sibling. So she said, hold on, hold on a minute. Why are we going back into something that's potentially a little fractured? Let's play it forward. Let's make stories now into the future. And it's a storytelling project. So look, these things are not necessarily uh, for everybody. But I would say is we are keen in medicine. And I think that this series is here uh, shows and that the College of Physicians are so keen on developing this area. I hope that people will be reassured and that we bring more of these elements into what we're doing. But lastly, if I might say, and I don't take too much time and more may come up in the discussion, it's also important that there is um, uh, it's interesting, in medicine, we tend to use the word research, and I think sometimes in the humanities, we use the word scholarship. And I think it's important we find a common ground here. But I think it's important we're also reasonably critical, and we in interrogate uh, these concepts as they come to us. Um, Arthur Frank uh, uh, is one of the, uh, one of the uh, theoreticians around narratives. And he talks about the various types of narratives that you can get, you know, um, the quest narrative, the restitution narrative, the chaos narrative. And um, I think thinking through, and I think it's quite important that we, we bounce back narratives that are inauthentic. Um, uh, uh, there, um, recently was uh, Florian Seller uh, had a play called The Father, which uh, I and somebody from the Irish Dementia Working Group both saw and both thought this is lazy nonsense. And indeed, uh, but oh, the critics loved it and they felt it was uh, hugely, uh, hugely uh, telling. The other film, and this, there is a danger too around uh, how people may unconsciously feed into uh, these negativities. And a classic other example is um, Michael Haneke's movie. And I'm really interested in cinematic narratives. I'm interested in visual narratives, such as um, Uther Molin's self-portraits through the course of dementia, which Martin Ross's group uh, published in The Lancet, just reassuring we are interested. But uh, Haneke's Amour was an extraordinarily uh, undermining uh, portrait of poor care in dementia. So uh, as is often the case with the upper middle class, when his wife gets the strokes and a stroke-related or precipitated dementia, there's no sign of speech therapist, there's no sign of physiotherapist support. And when she finally gets to the point where he euthanizes and everybody thinks this is very noble, she's crying out mal, mal. Well, in French, if you have a pain in the lag, leg, you say j'ai mal aux jambes, and with her speech broken up, she might just have been having a leg cramp. And the irony is uh, that this got filmed got so many awards. I mean, it's a beautifully made movie. And people were seduced by the aesthetics and didn't see the corrosive uh, narrative uh, underlying this. But to end on a, on a happier note and a film I hugely recommend to people is, uh, and, and, you know, the great thing, life living with deep forgetfulness is complex. It's complex internally, externally, and what's around us. And I think we need to recapture it and recapture it as an illness, as in many other illnesses, to strip away the negativity, the stigma. 
So when I told my wife, who's not keen on movies with subtitles, that I wanted to watch a German comedy about Alzheimer's disease, she said, there's three things wrong with that sentence. But in fact, um, this wonderful, wonderful movie by Till Schweiger called Honig im Kopf, Honey in the Brain. And whatever you do, do not see the American version with Nick Nolte, which is truly terrible. But this wonderful one, and the interesting thing, he's a kind of a, a, a popular filmmaker, um, not, not art house at all, um, broad comedies usually. But the it shows warmth and humor and intergenerational uh, factors. Um, it reminded me of what is my compelling overview of li living with dementia is for living. It's not some form of, a, of an accelerated death. And I'll finish off with the words of Ronan Smith, uh, who is really a key figure, I think, in the Irish Dementia Working Group. And because people often come into me and they're in the clinic and we said follow up, but there's usually two sorts of questions. One is practical things, you know, how do we manage things with, with the gas or bills or those sort of things. But then there's the existential concerns. What's going to happen in the future? And as I always say to them, look, life has so many paths that it may not be your memory issue that is the one that determines the next unfortunate events in life, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a fall and a broken hip or a cancer that develops or whatever. But also that now, you know, take what you like, take what you enjoy, uh, work out how much you can do. And as I watch families uh, in general, at least half of, of adult children in every case or spouses uh, rising, rising, to the, rising to the occasion, it really is, it, it's very affirming. It, but Ronan had a wonderful phrase about the future, that not only is my future narrative untold, but mine is also unwritten. Thank you. Thank you so much, Des. And what a wonderful phrase to finish on. Um, that's a really, really evocative, really beautiful. Um, so an enormous amount to think about there and to come back to in the Q&A. You'll have to forgive me. I'm typing away frantically, taking notes here. <laughs> um, and so our final panel speaker for this episode is Dr. Danielle Petherbridge. Um, so Danielle Petherbridge is in uh, the School of Philosophy at University College Dublin. She's director for the UCD Centre for Ethics and Public Life. Uh, Danielle works primarily in phenomenology and social philosophy and on theories of recognition and vulnerability. Um, she's principal investigator of an Irish Research Council New Foundations funded project dedicated to research on embodied cognitive accounts of dementia and personhood called Body Dementia in partnership with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. And she's also part of the Health Ethics and Narrative Ireland Network and co-founder of the Irish Young Philosopher Awards. So we're gonna get quite a different angle on things from, from Danielle. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say. Danielle, go ahead. Thank you, Claire. And thank you so much to Wendy and Kevin and Cloda. Uh, I think those were the most important narratives for us to actually listen to. So I want to talk a little bit about how perhaps philosophy can contribute to this conversation and particularly to thinking about medical research and clinical practice but also i think to challenge uh, common everyday taken for granted views about dementia uh, as well i think that's that's very important and i, I want to also um, back up what des was saying in that um, clinicians and healthcare professionals have been engaging with the humanities and with philosophy as in particular as well as the other social sciences 
and also vice versa philosophy obviously is learning a lot from from medical research and from clinicians and i think what i'd want to emphasize is that this is an incredibly rich dialogue and to bring these different disciplines together is incredibly rich and incredibly important both for research and for practice i think so i guess what philosophy and particularly my own research attempts to do is to open up dialogues in particular, but also to open up ways of attending to things uh, or to, to the subjects of clinical treatment or diagnosis in ways that don't take things for granted, that don't just make assumptions about the people who are under, undergoing that diagnosis, and to uh, avoid looking at things in a prejudiced manner. Um, and we've been talking about also not leaping in with a very negative view in terms of diagnosis, for example. So philosophy tries to challenge us to really, or to challenge common taken for granted points of view, particularly in this is important in terms of challenging things like stigma in relation to dementia as well. But it's also important in terms of looking at things in a different manner, perhaps. And there is a particular form of philosophy that I'm engaged with, which Claire mentioned is, is uh, term phenomenology, in which there's a very big focus put on patient experience. And doctors and clinicians are also engaging with this particular strand of philosophy uh, to think about lived experience, the lived experience of persons who are experiencing uh, dementia, for example. And this view of, of the patient's lived experience, or we want to say the person's lived experience, as Des says, we want to get away from actually talking about patients and talk about persons, and that's central to my own research, um, is really crucial in terms of diagnosis and practice and care, as, as Wendy and Kevin have, have also alerted us to. And I guess in the form of philosophy that I focus on and that I draw on, we make a distinction between the person who presents as um, someone with an, with, a, with an illness in her lived experience, so someone who goes along for tra treatment and brings along her lived experience, is different to the, the doctor who attends to this person uh, very much often as, a, as just a, a body um, and, of course, or, or an object of clinical knowledge. So not necessarily engaging with that lived experience of the person who comes along for diagnosis. So I guess there's a difference between the way that somebody lives their illness or, or their experience of it as a subject uh, as compared to how they might be treated in the moments of diagnosis or in care as, as really being thematized as a problem, I think, as, as in terms of negative problem, as we've heard. And I think that's really important to bridge that gap in terms of drawing on um, the sort of philosophical resources that I'm interested in, in drawing on, if they can be brought together much more closely. And they are obviously two sides of, you know, to, of, of really diagnosis and care that are crucial. So I think it's really important then, what I'm trying to do in my own research is to really um, put to the fore patient experience or person's experience and that has to be recognised and valued and really endorsed as, as central. And 
I think also what we've heard and, and what I'm also trying to focus on is how those interactions between clinicians and um, carers and just even institutions, medical institutions, how those interactions actually make people feel um, when, when they go in for the first time, when they're diagnosed, um, and also how those, those, those conversations, how the ways that clinicians and doctors and people who come for treatment, how it, how it then makes those people feel, depending on the terms that are used, the language that's used, or the picture, as Wendy and Kevin have, have explained for us, the way that it sort of strips away their life um, in the matter of minutes, depending on how it's explained or how they're viewed in that um, particular moment. So that's particularly one part of, of what my research is aiming to do. And the other part of it is that there is quite a, a long tradition in philosophy of also engaging with uh, disciplines such as cognitive science. And what I'm also trying to do is basically break down the stigmas about dementia as being just all about cognition and about the mind uh, in a very individualistic sense, as though, because there's often these common sense or common views that we hear in public about the dreadful um, diagnosis and these characteristics that are often explained in quite negative terms. So what we're trying to do is get away from that sort of um, focus just on mind and look at the, the person as a person, as someone with an identity that is maintained or that grows or that is reshaped in a particular way, and very much taking into account that it's not just about mind, but any mental states are also bodily states. Body and mind go together, and that's really crucial in any kind of illness or any kind of diagnosis, that even if it is about um, the mind or the brain or memory loss, that, in fact, we understand it in this more holistic manner. And I'll, I'll explain why I think that's important as well in just a moment. But what I want to stress is that if we understand also the, the brain or the mind, not just in individualistic terms, but uh, in terms of this sense of being connected, not only with the world through our embodied interactions, but also very much connected with others. So it's very important in terms of thinking about the mind or the brain um, as embedded in a social context, as situationally embedded, as inactive uh, in the sense that through dynamic engagement with others and with the world, um, then the mind is obviously something that is quite complex and it's not just this kind of, we sh shouldn't be thinking of it just in terms of this sort of individualistic sense in just in terms of uh, dementia as well. So what we're trying to do is say that um, particularly this is important for care, thinking about, you know, not just the mind but the embodied-minded um, aspects of it and that very much this sense of dynamic engagement with the world and dynamic engagement with others. And I guess one aspect of that is to think about, uh, if we're thinking about narrative as well, is to think about then the ways, if you think about even from infancy, that before we even have language, our relation, first relation to the world is an embodied one. You know, little children obviously pick up things and touch things before they can even speak. So we as human beings throughout our lives, we develop these bodily skills and these bodily habits. And in fact, we, we develop a bodily style, a way of moving through the world, a way of relating to particular things in our lives. And we do things in a particular way. So the argument is that, uh, that that bodily style 
uh, obviously changes throughout life, but it also is maintained. So we we shouldn't just be thinking about um, things in terms of the mind, but in terms of the whole person and the way in which that is shaped and changes throughout the life cycle. Uh, and so the other aspect to that that I wanted to emphasise is in terms of uh, dual narratives as well, writing together, and Wendy spoke about this uh, before about the way that, in fact, her narrative was uh, un un unfolded with somebody else. And I think this is a really important aspect to, to focus on is that talking about the embedded self and the importance of others, the relations with others are crucial in all of this. Uh, and so there are there's this sense of being able to write one's self or one's life with others as well, and that's crucial to this. And the other side of that is also then uh, what I might suggest is something like body narratives in that even if speech is difficult, um, there are ways in which you can communicate with others in an embodied manner and you can express yourself in, in an embodied manner, which is also indicative of your personhood and your identity. You have your own style of expressing yourself in an embodied manner. So what we also want to do then is uh, really point to the fact that personhood and identity is not held only in memory as such, that it's held and developed and changes in, in, in these different ways and that taking the person as a whole person. And I guess there's been some interesting uh, studies, for example, on bodily memory uh, and our embodied relation to the world. For example, by uh, there's a very famous jazz musician uh, who uh, was diagnosed with dementia and who seemed to lose the ability to play the saxophone. Brilliant musician. And he was living on his own at the time. And he, a former student of his actually came to visit him time and time again and encouraged him to pick up the saxophone again and just then brought his own saxophone in or, and they began to play. He just, they just played with a few notes first and then they started playing together. And that sense of playing their instruments together created this kind of dynamic engagement. Uh, and for that particular person who was a musician, maybe writing out narrative wasn't the way that he wanted to express himself, but actually playing his saxophone was crucial to the expression of self. And clearly, despite the fact that he hadn't been speaking much to anybody for a while, once he was able to pick up his saxophone again, there was this dynamic engagement and a narrative unfolded with with others through through music and I think that's an, another way to to think about narrative in this sense and how important that is uh, so what we want to say is that this sense of personhood is crucial and to, to argue that that personhood is maintained identity is maintained and to try and challenge those very negative stigmas about this sense of loss of identity or loss of this and the negative stigmas that, that were spoken about and to think about um, this much more situated and I mean Kitwood was was very crucial on this in terms of dementia research in terms of the situated nature of 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 um, persons uh, their embedded nature and their relations with others that was crucial um, and of course that was also central to this um, sense of, of person-centred care as Clodagh was speaking about at the beginning. Uh, so what we also want to then is to encourage much more of this sense of dynamic engagement and dynamic 
uh, identity recognition, if you like, and this sense that personhood is not just about memory, it's not just about how we relate through uh, cognition, but very much also um, personhood is has to be taken in in this more complex sense of both the mind, the body, but also it's about recognition from others. It's about um, not th that persons are persons because they're recognised by others. And I think that's crucial in any medical encounter and any diagnosis in any everyday experience. So I think what we want to really encourage is much more of this sense of, of expression of identity, but also the multitude of ways that that might occur um, and particularly how important it is uh, in terms of how we relate to others in these particular encounters. Thank you. Super. Thanks so much, Danielle. There's so much to pick up on and so much, so much rich discussion here. I'm very excited. So one of the things that I, I really, um, I'm going to open this up now to, to a fuller discussion and I'm joined, um, I'm joined also by um, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, who is a consultant and liaison child and adolescent psychiatry in Children's University Hospital Temple Street and an associate professor at UCD. Um, and we're going to bring the whole panel um, together to, to talk through some of the many threads of commonality um, there. I wanted to pick up on one of the very last things, Danielle, that you were saying, this idea of recognition, um, this idea of, of that, that, that personhood evolves from and is related to being recognized by other people. And that really struck me in relation to something that Des said. Des, when you were talking about um, uh, Zola's experiment and, and living in a wheelchair and that the change in, the obvious change in recognition that he experienced in that situation. And to, to Kevin and Wendy, you both mentioned the ways that you were addressed and the identities that were given to you, thrust upon you in some ways in around the diagnosis, around the clinical procedure. I know that Wendy, that the idea of a sufferer of dementia, dementia is a particular, a particular bugbear for, for you. And Kevin, I know that you were very struck by, and I'm, I'm interested in the relationship that you, you and Helena went in as husband and wife and emerged as patient and carer. And can you talk a little bit, if you would, about how you would change that language? Yeah, um, I did say that, and it was, uh, was last year, Claudia, we were doing a presentation, Dr. Laura Philby and myself on PPI. And I read it and I said, patient public involvement. And I said, just, I said to Laura, I said, you know, I said, that word is wrong. And I mean, sometimes we can get hooked up on words, but there's 50, there was 52 weeks in the year previous. And there was only two weeks that year I was a patient. That's why I was not, when I was in hospital. Mm -hmm. Every other time of the year, I'm a, I'm a person. Yes. And I mean, I'd be the first to give out a word off, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> with words, but, you know, they, you know, they're, they're really, they're really and truly do matter. Yes. And like that day, we genuinely did feel coming out that our lives had changed forever. And we were, look, my neurologist has turned out to be a good friend of mine um, and can't do enough for me. But I would probably say the day I was diagnosed was not her strongest day yeah. with us as a couple. Absolutely. Um, that is exactly how we felt when we came out into the car, that you're gone from my wife and you're not my carer. Yeah. And it took a good six months before 
we could cope with it. And the hardest thing for Helena to cope with was she might ring her sister in Listowel this morning, which is an hour away, and say, Francis would say, how's Kevin? He, he is still in bed. He had a terrible night. He is very ill. Francis would sit in her car without telling Helena, arrive over, and where's Kevin? He's outside cutting the lawn. Sure. And Helena felt for a long time that people were thinking that she was making it up, that she was a liar. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it wasn't Helena who was making up the lie. It wasn't Kevin that was making up the lie. It was Louis that was making a liar out of one of us. Yeah. Because that, that my disease, like, is, I call it the vampire disease. It, it's at it's night, it really shines through. Last night, I, I beat a man to death. Now, I had a meeting this morning at 9 o'clock. And in order to get that image and get that world out of my head, I was up at 7 and I had a couple of cups of tea and I watched a bit of Ireland AM and I had my ball of porridge and, and it took me an hour to come from that world into this world yeah. to look forward to this morning. And it's like... It's like getting the child ready for school. I had to get my brain ready for my brain ready for today. And that's a different form of dementia to, yes. to other types of dementia. Yes. And it sounds like talking about what your your wife calling her sister and the change between when she when, when Helena speaks to her and when she arrives, that it's not that the language is wrong, it's that it, there isn't enough in it. No, that it's, and, and there's another subject I brought to yesterday and because of the panel that's here and because, because um, of the doctors and professors and everything, I don't mind saying it. Um, Robin Williams committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Not because he wanted to commit suicide. He committed suicide because he had Louis body dementia and he did not know it. Yeah. The only difference between Robin Williams and Kevin Quaid is Robin, where Robin Williams succeeded, I failed. When I tried suicide, the belt broke. Oh my wasn't that I thought about it. I had the belt nailed into the rafter and the belt broke. I often say, but for it being a, but for it being a, a cheap fella, if I bought a real leather belt, okay. I would have found me hanging. Oh my goodness. But there have been nights as late as three weeks ago when I woke on a Monday morning and I said to Helena, if I did not know what was causing yeah. this at night. I would have no problem in it. Yeah. But now I know that I, if I speak to my wife, if I give it the hour, if I have the cup of tea, yeah. I didn't realise this is not Kevin Quaid. Kevin has Louis body disease, yeah. disease and that's what's causing it. And, and so that is keeping me alive. And so in some ways, in your experience, having the word to say, this is what is happening to me, this is what is causing it, yes. has been really, really important. Wendy, can I can I come to you on that, on that point? And mm-hmm. I, I, as I say, I'm interested in how you would change the language that you experience, mm-hmm. how important it's been for you. The, the psychological effect of words and body language should never be underestimated by any healthcare profession mm-hmm. because we... We look to them as the experts. And if they're looking sad or their demeanour is 
sad or, um, and their language is negative, then we believe them because yes. we know nothing else. They're the expert. Yes. So they have to realize the impact they have on the person in front of them. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, when I got diagnosed, so did my daughters. So the whole yes. family needs that reassurance, that hope. Yes. We all need knowledge and support. And it's the knowledge that makes or breaks us. Mm -hmm. So that first initial diagnosis is what makes or breaks you. Yes. And some people come through it, like myself and Kevin, but other people just don't know where to go. Yeah. And my, my phrase is, we don't know what we don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I, Des, can I bring that to you as, as, the, as the clinician here with experience in this area? You were very clear in your presentation that you avoid negativity, you avoid what you called apocalyptic language, which I think was a really, really useful term for it. And I'm struck that you all have mentioned, every speaker has mentioned the importance of the support network, the family, the loved ones, those who go on the journey along with the person with the diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach it as a clinician, Des? Sure, yeah. Well, the first thing is we generally uh, run through uh, the kind of breaking bad news framework, which is around making sure somebody isn't deeply depressed, mm -hmm. uh, developing a sense of a, a kind of making sure it's a, it's a reasonably long consultation, certainly, if things become apparent. Uh, I think it's also really important how we stage it. So um, I still get relatives who are kind of surprised when I bring the person in on their own, mm -hmm. always, doesn't matter how severe it may be. And indeed, the person coming often, um, particularly in the more severe stages, perhaps um, may feel they're being dragged there. And the first mm. thing I say to them is, you're in charge here. If you want to stop right now, we stop right now. Mm -hmm. And actually, nearly always, because they feel in charge again, uh, it, it continues. And I, the other thing is, I always say when I'm taking the collateral history, and this is what we try and train our trainees to do, we ask the permission of the person affected. Right. The forgetfulness. Who would you like us to talk to? Occasionally they say, we don't want you to talk to anybody. And that's okay because we've actually picked up quite a bit during the, that session. Um, and then we say, we can share that information with you in the room. Are you outside the room and discuss with you afterwards? If you're in the room, uh, you hear what's going on, although with your, with your forgetfulness, you may not be aware of it. You might find it distressing, but either event, it's, it's your choice. Yeah. So, I think empowering the person who comes is 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 so there's a a preload. Yeah. Then when it comes, there's a very big literature on 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 the relatively for all of us when we become patients uh, that we only absorb X percent of what's yes. happening, you know, and indeed may misinterpret or whatever else. So I always um, uh, phrase it around. Um, uh, you try and gauge a bit what does the person themselves know, or what do they think. Uh, and then you outline it. And I think one of the ways I outline it, because very often I can see the relative going, you know, and I say, well, look, there's a couple of reasons why this is important, uh, both dignity and everything else. And mm -hmm. I said, the other thing is, by and large, we often try a medication, the little bit of paper in it has written on it, Alzheimer's disease. So you're better to learn, have a chat with me about it than learning it from a bit of paper sure. uh, in your living room. And it may impact on things like driving and other sorts of things. It may impact on 
you know, future planning, a whole range of things. Then we, we now COVID has affected it somewhat, but we have a, what, what everywhere should have. And I think this is something we are really trying to promote. They should have a post-diagnostic counselling service. Yeah. We've advanced nurse practitioners who are very expert in this uh, area here. We also run a course. We have a, a series of brochures. Mm. We link people into uh, the ASI. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 we talk through uh, these these elements and the Alzheimer Cafe, those sort of things. Yes. Now, there's, there's a famous old phrase that I remember hearing 30 years ago is when you see one person with Alzheimer's disease, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease. So everybody's very different. They're very different about the ways they um, they want knowledge. Some people mm -hmm. want everything. Some people say, I'm happy to take it as it comes. Yes. So it's about trying to, to, to gauge what the person who's come to you with the condition yes. is the person who should be the pace setter yeah. uh, in, in so that might sound a bit idealistic but it but it, it's it is what we're trying to generate as 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 a standard and then once we've established where we're going with people we often do a thing called a further review at gp discretion um, mm -hmm. uh, and we we hold on to people where there's clearly issues around struggles or things around driving on that um and i do try again I keep trying to emphasize to people the importance of, of, of the positive things you can yes. do. And it troubles me a bit in healthcare is we're still deficit oriented in how we measure. Yeah. And one of the things I like is a thing called the pleasant event schedule, which is what are the things you like doing and how can we then use that as a, as a, as a template? Yes. Uh, Yes, and that very much ties in, Kevin, with your immediate advice at the beginning, doesn't it? Sort of to, to say, what are the things that you have wanted to do? And that term deficit oriented is, is very useful. And I think it picks up on something that both Wendy and Kevin said, which was to flip the conversation. Mm. And I suppose one of the questions that arises is, you know, Clodagh, at the beginning, you gave, um, you gave some figures around the number of the number of people living with dementia in Ireland and, and how that's expected to rise. And there's a tension, it seems to me, there between the, the desire to, to centre the person in each case, in each individual case, and how you go about training and equipping clinicians to do that. Um, because obviously they can't all meet every individual person living with a diagnosis. So to what extent, and this is an open, an open question, to what extent and how can we use the stories that, that, that people like Wendy and Kevin have written um, in equipping clinicians through, through education and training, through ongoing practice, do you think, to, to really drive home and really enhance that, that person-centered care, that person-centered experience, do you think? So Wendy, I can see, wants to speak straight away. Well, the medics, they, you know, so much is learned through their academia, their books, the, the practicalities of medicine, the practicalities of diagnosis, which, you know, they have to learn. But the, the flip side of that is the reality of that disease, the real stories of that disease. And if somehow the two can be combined in their learning, then it's a win-win situation because they have that, that gel of academic mm -hmm. understanding of how the body works but also how 
it can affect people in different ways yes. and how their position in our lives can affect us in yes. a way that they might not have thought of. One of the main questions around patient-centred care is that there is a need. It's not only individual, of course, just as Danielle was saying in her presentation, that there is an enormous need for community support and social support. And Danielle, if I could come to you about that for a moment, in your experience, how does the, the work that you're doing, how does that help to structure an understanding of that community embeddedness, that social embeddedness of the subject that you talked about? Yes, it's several ways. I draw a lot on the notion of vulnerability, that as human beings, we're all vulnerable. Doesn't matter what part of the life cycle, we're actually all vulnerable. And I think if we remember that, then it's, it's, I think it's much easier to get past this situation where people sort of somehow stigmatise somebody that's diagnosed with an illness. Um, and a lot of that respons responsivity or that reaction is often because it makes them feel very vulnerable. So family members or, or carers often also feel vulnerable. And I have drawn on, for example, the um, biography written about Iris Murdoch mm, by yes. John Bailey, her, yeah. her partner. And there's some interesting pieces in that biography where he describes those kinds of feelings and, and in fact, describes Iris Murdoch herself in quite negative terms. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, th I find that quite interesting because uh, I think that is something that, you know, needs to be addressed, that this not only ex affects the person themselves, but their relations with others. And obviously those relations are crucially important because mm. um, it's, it's not only in terms of support and care, but it is in terms of that we are relational beings. So yeah. we require those people around us. Um, so we do need to think about ways that we can structure that into support, yes, um, support for families, but also particular kinds of care as well in terms of those sorts of structures. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting that you've also um, family members, for example, also feel vulnerable. And I mentioned um, the, the, the Iris Murdoch uh, biography. Mm. There's one point in which John Bailey mentions that, um, you know, he has to kind of reduce himself to the same sort of feeling of vulnerability to be able to communicate in that sense and be able to really understand. Uh, yeah. And I wanted, I, I, I remember that the, 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 the part of, of the biography of the Iris Murdoch biography and, and sort of representing her as quite challenging. And that that picks up on something, Clodagh, that, that you had mentioned to me, which is a question for everybody, but I think a question to, to Des initially. Um, one of the difficulties or tensions around these stories that we hear, they're so important and, and, and vital and useful, but those of us beyond the story, those of us reading the story or hearing the story, for example, we do love a bit of sensationalization. You know, we do love a dramatic kind of a weepy tale. And so the question is, how do we avoid sensationalizing and sort of apocalypticizing, I don't know if that's a word, um, these, these narratives for those of us who aren't living with it, aren't experiencing um, this illness? And, and how important is that as well? I mean, what's the what's the balance? Clodagh, this is a question that you raised. So if you want to follow up before I turn it over to Des, that, that's, go ahead. I think it's really important because I think there, there, there is such value and importance in listening to people 
and to tell their story. And I was struck what Des was saying about the, the play he had looked at, the film, that there was that they were quite focusing on the negative aspects of living with dementia. Mm -hmm. And I would see that the media does often focus on the sensational aspect, the, the, the scariness of the disease, mm -hmm. the big headline, and that there is a risk without the right support for the person that they become a kind of a, a news story yeah. or a... A, a sensational figure for our entertainment yes. rather than our learning. And I think in a way it's kind of connected to the, the public discourse and narrative on dementia, which is, you know, the demographic burden, a ticking time bomb. What are we going to do with all these older people? What are we going to do about everyone who's developing dementia? So the public discourse mm -hmm. is predominantly negative. Mm. And then the, the, the story of the person living with dementia and their struggles sometimes can be tacked onto that negative sensationalist mm -hmm. approach. So it's it's hard to maintain an, an authenticity yes. about the lived experience and the story within that, I think. And I was I was kind of prompted when when Des was saying about those those films and 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 um, plays that had seemed to quite sensationalize the sure. story. Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, I think sometimes we, we, we forget that things move on and we make progress. So I think one of the positive things was the Understanding Together uh, campaign, uh, which, you know, portrayed people to the outside world. And and again, I think it's really important not to um, isolate um, uh, dementia disorders from other areas. I do, did a lot of stroke work and stroke was a deeply embarrassing subject until two major, we had lots of major figures in public life come through, but don't breathe a word, I've had it. And two heroes that came out on this was, so So people coming out with narratives are important. And uh, Mick Doyle, the former Ireland rugby coach, but also a UCD academic, uh, very loved for his, his radio um, uh, inputs on, on words, uh, especially how Irish use English, Terry Dolan yes. came out as the champion uh, to open this out. But from our point of view as, as academics, researchers, scholars, and also educators, I think it's important that we put a very critical slant and an awareness uh, on, these, on these narratives, pointing out the ones that seem to be authentic, uh, linking them into appropriate theories, bringing in, I think, the richness of philosophy. I mean, I think Martha Nussbaum's The Fragility of Goodness, where ironically, you know, our, our, our vulnerability is our strength, you know, Goethe has this famous phrase, it's that in being constrained that the master shows himself. But I think it's around uh, due uh, uh, critical focus on, on some of these areas here, trying to get it out into the public domain. And increasingly, our universities want us to make an impact. So when they're looking at people for promotion, and I think this is a good thing, they want to know, oh, not only did you do some super bit of sophisticated research, mm -hmm. but did you get it out there yeah. and did it make a difference? And ensure uh, you know, yeah. public involvement, those sort of things. Yeah. So I think and there is a responsibility in the role properly. here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a that's a really a really comprehensive answer. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask. We've heard we've heard from from Kevin and Wendy about the experience of writing and writing with people um, and the creativity that they've that that they've both found. I wanted to ask about reading. Um, do you do you what 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 other sorts of stories do you read? What writers do you enjoy? Wendy, you talk about poetry 
quite a mm. lot, what, which I, I love to talk about. Can you, can you say a bit about, about what you read for, for pleasure, for inspiration? Well, I've always loved reading. Always, always. And sadly now I can't, I can't even read my own book because I forget what's on yes. every page. So I can't follow the, the story. So I can't read the types of books that I used to read. But uh, again, my mantra is there's always a way. So I started writing and reading poetry. Yes. Because that's on one page, can be on one page in front of me. Yes. And I can follow it. I can write, I can write poems. But also I discovered the, the beauty of children's fiction again. Ah, yes. Um, and the very books that I read to my daughters, they now buy for me. Yes. So we, I relive and but read them in a totally different eye with totally different eyes, and the the imagery in children's books is just amazing. Yes. And it's it's almost lost in. For children sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> on them. All adults need to revisit children's books from, from their childhood or from their children's Absolutely. childhood. But also I um I have to read my book if you like every now and then just to keep track of what on earth I talked about. Sure. <laughs> and so I listen. Yeah. And I I can't retain what I'm hearing, but I can pick up on certain things yes. that, that I can talk about. Yes. So, so I've just found another way of still enjoying that wonderful medium of, yes. of reading. That's wonderful. So poetry and children's fiction. That's, yeah. that's, that's so interesting. Mm. Kevin, can I ask you the same question? Yeah, I wouldn't have any particular... Um, writer or that, that I would follow. But my favorite books were books, real life story books. Yeah. Um, Paula Connell's book, The Rugby Player, was inspiring because I thought Paula Connell's book was going to be about this big hard man. <laughs> Paula Connell's book was all about his fears and vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I just said, good on you for doing that. Absolutely. I read Jim Stein's book, um, he passed away from cancer. I read Joe Dolan's book and I, this this jockey in um, in Australia, Kyle Sanderlands. He wound up living in the streets at fourteen years of age, and he's probably his mid fifties now. He's one of the wealthiest and top DJs in Australia. But the biggest trouble for me with books is unless it's clear white paper and the font is minimum of fourteen, then I can't read it. Yes. And my favourite book of all was Joe Dolan, the singer. I was just mad about his, I love his music. And I have his book inside and I gave it to a friend of mine. He gave it back to me. I wanted to read it again and I can't. And if you say, well, hold up the magnifying glass in front of it and read it like that. The magnifying glass or the book or both will wind up in the fire. <laughs> I think that's that's really interesting, the, the practical because we, we talk about the content of books a lot, don't we? And the themes and images, but actually the, the physical, the practicality yeah. of it. I go to a bookshop and I pick up a book 
that I think I like to read, the first thing I'll do is I'll flip through the pages and if the font is too small, yeah. No, and if the color if the color of the paper is clear white and the font is 14 plus, I'm happy. You're and all right. Any any speech I give from myself, I that's what I need. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I need. Now, and that I think that picks up on what Wendy was saying earlier, which I was so struck by, but the way you use Twitter and emojis and, and I'm just I'm so I'm so interested in the fact that for both of you, as you say, Wendy, you have found new ways of communicating, of telling stories, of reading stories and finding them. But it seems, Kevin, from what you're saying, that what's really important for you, what really resonates with you in what you read is, again, that sense of authenticity that we've been talking about, that sense that lived experience is, is I, really I, key. I just love it because I find that most people that write books, um, especially it's sports people and yeah. people I know, I feel when I'm reading the book, I have to hear their voice. I picture, I can, it's almost like they're reading it to me, if that makes sense. Yes. But there's no point you giving me a book about some guy that I've never heard of, but I don't know about. Um, I can't wait to read Wendy's book now. <laughs> That's I good. Her. I know what she looks like. <laughs> so she's a real person now, so you can read yeah. her. Wendy, you wanted yeah. to say something just then. Don't give, don't give me a um, non-fiction book because... I'll, I'll, I'll use it to stop the fire. <laughs> Wendy? Uh, it was interesting when I... Um, my book came out in America as well, yeah. and the American people allowed me to uh, do my own audio version. Wow, okay. What was that well, like? Well, that was just amazing. But in England... I wasn't allowed to do my own voice of voice reading because they they thought I wouldn't be capable. So the people that knew me knew I had dementia. They thought I wasn't capable. Yeah. But the American company that didn't know sure. my book was about dementia, they thought, yeah, let's have the yeah, real person. So so, so again, that's that's this what 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 everyone has raised. What Danielle and Des talked about assumptions exactly. Yeah, yeah. This this stigmatization, and so it seems as if the the own voice narrative, telling your own story authentically, um, and and being heard that 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 sense that that it's it's read and heard and understood does seem to be the way to challenge those stigmas and to to share that vulnerability. Um, that, that Danielle has, has mentioned. I have one more question, but it's unrelated, really. So I just want to see if anybody else has, has final questions or comments that they'd like to make. I'm conscious of time. Liz, do you want to come in? I really just wanted to comment. Every, every time we do one of these podcasts, we, we bring together experts from lots of different areas. And I always feel really nervous about how people will gel and if they will have shared experience. And every single time, just as Danielle said, it feels really powerful to have people from different disciplines and different experiences in the room talking together. And there's so, so much commonality when we do that. And even listening as a doctor, I was thinking about how important it is for physicians and trainees and clinicians of all kinds to hear about these stories. and. You know, it takes a huge amount of energy for Wendy and Kevin and Cloda to go and meet people. It's wonderful that they do. But thinking about ways where these stories can be shared 
I mean, Wendy and Kevin, you're never going to be able to meet every clinician. Uh, exactly. Claire was saying, so how can we share these stories in really meaningful ways? And this has felt like a, a really very meaningful shared experience to me. Yeah. And I hope yeah. clinicians listening to it will really take away um, the stories and the experiences you've had. And also, you know, Des's literature. I mean, I bet you clinicians, yeah. clinicians will listen to this and will be writing, writing down things to read. <laughs> And for Danielle, that reminder about embodied experience, something we don't really talk about very much, I think, in clinical practice. But you've really made me think about, you know, there are so many perspectives on this that we need to think about in medical education and training. So thanks to everyone for for participating. It's just been wonderful. Thank you. Elizabeth, I'm sure I speak for Wendy and myself. For a nominal fee, we'll try and speak to as many (laughs) clinicians. Good man. <laughs> I have to say, I've learned a really important phrase today that Dad said, and I'm going to, a schedule of pleasant activities. I, I don't have dementia, but I would very much like someone to create a <laughs> activities for me, particularly now during COVID-19. I think that's a great phrase. I'm going to bring it into my life. <laughs> I had one last question, if that's if that's okay, um, if people don't mind. One of the things that struck me, um, Des, in, in your you raised it a couple of times in in your presentation, and I know I know from from both Kevin and, and Wendy, um, that stories and 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 communication come in different forms. And Danielle was saying this as well. And I so I know that Des is involved in singing. I know that you're you're a choir man like myself. Um, and I I know Kevin and Wendy, you both you both bake. Um, can can you tell me how was that was that something that you did before? Are there other kind of creative forms that you that you that you enjoy that you find valuable? Um, I I've loved to bake all my life, and I think it goes back to my grandmother. She uh-huh. was a cook in Springfield Castle. There's a book on that and so on. It's it's a pretty much a magical tale. And to she taught me how to bake, and my mother was a good baker. But I'll just tell you a very quick true story and. It's okay to laugh at yourself every now and again. I mean, <laughs> absolutely beautiful apple tart. I mean, the pastry is only like yeah. that size, and I make one with cloves or without cloves. And I was at home one day, and I'm a, I'm very tidy in the kitchen, and I have to be on my own. If I didn't come in there, walk out. But I was making the apple tart then, and I put the apple tarts into the oven. I make three of them together, and I looked around. And it was just like you catch a bag of flour and you would go like that. Oh, no. And whatever look I gave, the dishwasher was open and I had the cores of the apple put into the holders. <laughs> that. And I just said to myself, you're some, the word begins with B and ends with X. <laughs> I'm not sure we're allowed that on a podcast. Oh, and I just, you know, I just, I just thought for a second, look at the cut of the place, you have to clean this up. And I just went, you know what? It's okay, you've dementia. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I just I, I just allow myself every now and again to have a laugh at myself. Yeah. You know, and I tell you what, Kevin, I'm terrible messy in the kitchen and I have no such excuse. There's just a dusting have, of flour on every surface I when I bake. As I go. But it's therapeutic. And yeah. It's therapeutic. Because my kids, it was so funny in Australia when we were all there. I put up on the app, I put up a photograph of an apple tart. Uh-huh. We have six children. There was a time where the six of them were in Australia with yeah. us. 
within an hour. They were landed at the door. <laughs> um, the that missed it. They all know that I had one bake for them as well. So, and that's that's one of the things, isn't it, about about baking, about singing, about all the, the different forms of art, and about writing. That it's a way of sharing with people. It's a way of connecting with people, and really kind of getting right cozy in the middle of that that network of community and and support that that, that Danielle was talking about. Wendy. Oh uh, yeah. I, I... I, I used to adore baking. Sadly, now I, I can't coordinate for baking, but I, I never dwell on my losses and I find new things. Yes. And the, my local village, I only moved here four years ago. And they know me as the camera lady. They don't know me as Wendy with dementia first and the camera lady second. They know me as the camera lady first because I post my photos every day on the village Facebook page and it's only now that they all realize I have dementia but they see me as the camera lady who takes yeah. wonderful photos which I find lovely. Well, I was looking through your blog and, and there's there are such beautiful photo kind of photo essays and experiences there and <laughs> I really love the title of, of your blog Wendy, I don't think we mentioned it yet, which me am I today? And I just, I think that really captures exactly what we've been talking about, you know, and then really yeah. kind of continuing to be yourself and to discover new, new sides of yourself and new, new angles of yourself. I just yeah. think that the positivity and optimism of that is, is, is hugely important and really comes through from, from both of you. And the, the kind of the, the courage that both of you show and the energy still that you that you bring to your advocacy, that you bring to your creativity. It's just, it's it's extremely inspiring, um, but it's also really instructive. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's quite specifically instructive. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap us up there if that's, if that's all right with everybody. And just again, to thank everybody so much for the energy and the generosity and the expertise that you've brought. 